Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. How do we think about trigger warnings and safe spaces from a free speech perspective? Do existing legal guidelines on regulating speech work for all universities? How do we balance everyone's right to speak with the right to participate in open and robust debate? I spoke with Alexander Tsessis, who teaches at Loyola University School of Law in Chicago. His books include Constitutional Ethos, For Liberty and Equality, We Shall Overcome a History of Civil Rights and the Law, The 13th Amendment and American Freedom, A Legal History, and Destructive Messages, How Hate Speech Paves the Way for Harmful Social Movements. Professor Tsessis explained to me how to think about trigger warnings in safe spaces and how to balance out the need for an equality for all participants in a university with a need to let everybody speak. Welcome, thank you. I'm here with Professor Alexander Tsessis, who is a professor of law and actually the Raymond and Mary Simon Chair in Constitutional Law and a professor of law at Loyola University in Chicago School of Law. First of all, hey, Alex, thank you for being on the podcast today. I appreciate it. So, Alex, you've written a wide range of books. I'm going to just refer briefly to a few titles because they are so relevant for what's going on on university campuses. So you've published recently Constitutional Ethos. Before that, We Shall Overcome, A History of the Civil Rights Movement and the Law. Before that, Destructive Messages, How Hate Speech Paves the Way for Harmful Social Movements. And a book for liberty and equality on the 13th Amendment and American freedom. And you have a book coming out, I think, on the larger considerations of free speech doctrine and how it intersects with other part of our lived existence. Yeah, that one will be called Contextual Free Speech, and it'll be coming out with Cambridge University Press, I hope, in 2019, probably more realistically, 2020. So you've jumped into these debates not recently only and weighed in on campus controversies. You have a very long article, which I found incredibly useful and helpful on campus speech and harassment, where you look at speech and the incredible importance of protecting speech and expression in universities, and then other concerns that also affect universities, which is to maintain a teaching and learning environment where everybody can participate on equal footing. But I want to just go back a moment. What was your original interest? Because you've been writing on harmful speech, on hate speech, on the First Amendment, on liberty, on freedom for quite a long time. It is not your concern for the last six months or two years. No, yeah. I, I started out very early. I, I don't really know if you're referring to how it all began. It all began with, you know, just me trying to find original topics when I was still a lawyer, when I was still in practice, and trying to figure out what is happening in the First Amendment field and what are the hot issues and then finding holes where nobody's written about them. And at that time, I started reading about the historical aspects of hate speech and how it developed and how it affected throughout the world and began looking at particularly the imminent threat of the harm doctrine in the United States, Brandenburg test, and seeing how valid it was based on not empirical evidence in the sense of a laboratory empirical test, but to use history as my empirical site and see whether concepts that Alvaro Holmes came up with for example, in the marketplace of ideas and clear and present danger test right. applied. Then with the campus speech, it really seemed like an obvious offshoot. For one thing, I wanted to be very clear on making a statement that was something that was quite hot, as you know, with the crits in the 1990s with Nadine Strawson and Charles Lawrence, for example, their fantastic debates, or one debate that was published. So 
So would, yeah. give, me, give me the context. I know it's so Charles Lawrence, Kimberly Crenshaw, Richard Delgado, and they're first, debating with and Patrick McKinnon, and then they're debating with Nadine Strauss and other people. So what's the first side of this group? What are they arguing? Uh, well, the first side, I would say, is Richard Delgado, who argued for civil liability in a tort manner for hate speech violations. And then Nadine Strawson arguing primarily when she was president of the ACLU and still continuing. She just has a recent book that came out, right. Jeff Stone's series on hate speech. She actually came here to Loyola. She's on I the podcast, her. so I've spoken with her. So her book, Hate Speech and How to Defeat It with More Speech, is that recent book. But when she's president of the ACLU in the 90s, so she takes a position, people should not be penalized for saying even yeah. offensive and hateful things. Exactly. And she takes that, it's a much broader position than just hers alone. So there are a variety of defenses of liberty of speech, complete liberty. For example, Jeff Stone arguing that in the United States, the European limitations are not ones that are necessary and that our democracy, in fact, bears it out. Then there's the very commonly accepted and often used idea about the steam rising and that people should be able to let off their steam right. and that if they safety, don't your safety anymore. valve if you run around town safety and, valve, exactly. and, and so you open up the safety valve you let the steam out exactly and so these yeah. two ideas that our democracy is strong enough not just strong enough but actually needs to allow everybody to just express even their vile opinions because then we all work out together to move forward it's like lee bollinger saying society gets stronger more tolerant Nadine saying, yeah, exactly. well, people, Lee are often writing with Stone, of course. Yeah. People grow, Jeff Stone saying, this is actually, and then they go to the university and say, especially there, we should be subjected to all opinions, because God forbid we would screen anything out before we get to the classroom seminar lecture hall. There's also, I mean, there are a number of other really major perspectives that oppose any sort of regulation of hate speech, and I'm going to use that in quotes. One in particular that if you don't if they allow them to speak out their message, white supremacists or whatever, fascists, then you, we won't know who they are. And so this is a way of exposing them there to the light of day so that then the police can actually watch them and see whether or not they do become So when you were to work on harmful speech, did you have that sense that we don't know that people harbor some of these dark sentiments or destructive things? I mean, to me today in America, it's 2019. I think most people are aware that those people are around. They've been quite loud, vocal, murderous. I mean, we've had Charlottesville, things like that. But back then, people really think, you've got to get this out into the open. We also didn't have the internet. We yeah. couldn't communicate. So you maybe heard somebody in some town somewhere did something terrible and racist or something, and you were like, that's just a little tiny part of American society. But we must know who all these people are. So I believe where I really think the direction was to say that there needs to be an intent component which goes beyond Delgado because Delgado is tort and negligence would be sufficient. And I said that speech is, really does need to be protected in a greater way as a matter of rights. It isn't only true just because we have a First Amendment, but it's generally around the world. Democracies agree that you need speech, you need free conversation, art, philosophy, politics, self-realization, artistic outlets, etc., and as well as the ability to say things that are stupid without getting busted, they can assert the union. The first author I ever met was a woman who was sent to the Stalinist gulags. Evgeny Nikolaevna Sizhnyova was her name. She was sent to the Stalinist gulags in 1936. She went to Lubanka prison, the famous Lubanka prison, and then she from there to the gulags for writing a children's story that was opposing the communists. It was a child who committed suicide after 
he had renounced his father for stealing grains from the Kolkhoz. But actually got 10 years and 10 years extension from St. Petersburg, or was still Leningrad. So part of it was trying to find a way that democracy could balance, and still very much in this new book that I'm writing, Contextualizing Free Speech, balancing the need for regulation while maintaining a free and open democratic society. The intent component created a criminal liability. Now, when I say intent, I'm speaking about purpose, knowledge, or recklessness, which all come under intent. So it could be actually trying to seek some destructive end, or it could be knowing that some destructive end would come to the, the old John Mill thing, standing in front of a uh, grain merchant and saying all sorts of things that rile people up. I mean, you know that it's going to, you don't have to say go attack. I think mean, that's really knowledge-based. So rec- maybe that's even recklessness. You should have known. Can you say something about the shift when Delgado says it is a tort, which means someone could be sued for it and would have to pay a fine or somehow be punished, right? Before that, so it, before that fighting words had always been, as you write quite a lot about from Chaplinsky from a case on, fighting words had always been regulated and the court had always acknowledged there's some speech either low value or direct incitement we don't need to protect but that actually is harmful exactly. yeah yeah although there i take quite a different tack than the, the contemporary court did as you recall from triplinski there's a discussion about balancing of social harms with speech right. then it ends up with a statement about categories of speech that have never been protected the contemporary court the roberts court in particular starting with the United States v. Stevens case dealing with violent videos of animal cruelty and then cases dealing with entertainment merchants finding unconstitutional, as in that Stevens case, unconstitutionality also, but in uh, entertainment merchants, uh, violent video game legislation, and then with other matters, Medal of Honor statutes being found unconstitutional, the court has taken some of the beginning Stevens with Chief Justice Roberts and Kennedy leading way that there are these categories of speech that come from Chaplinsky. These are historical categories. They're the only ones that can be protected. They're very libertarian. To which I say there's another part of Chaplinsky that talks about balancing, that balancing its contextualization and contextualization of trying to figure out whether on campus or whether other forms. But I don't use hate speech, I use destructive messages, because I think you can destroy someone without hating them, look for an opportunistic crime, go to a gay neighborhood thinking that that's a more affluent neighborhood often, and attack a gay person. Not because you hate them, just you want to attack them because they are gay, which would obviously be a hate crime, and to instigate others to attack that person because he or she is gay or lesbian, and not hate them at all, but to create destructive messages. So that's why I use that title in the book, because I actually think that hate speech pigeonholes us. And so the balance that I say is this, it's a sophisticated one. This is what I'm doing in the book. It comes actually from Justice Breyer's dissent in Alvarez, also in his dissent in McCutcheon, which is a case dealing with aggregation of campaign financing. And in Alvarez also, he writes about it. He is balancing speech. And this is that you have to consider, courts should consider the rights of the speaker, any countervailing concerns that the government may have, for example, whether it's on campus or not, intimidation, harassment. Number three, the means ends. How is the structure of the law looking at the technicalities of the, the statute, the regulation, or the campus code, which is a law if it's a state college or university? And like, we can talk about how private universities are involved later on. And then finally, determining whether there are any alternative channels for that person to communicate, whether it's the least restrictive means. And then where I go beyond Justice Breyer is to say we also should look at history and doctrine. 
And I have an extensive consideration there, including using the Declaration of Independence in the preamble to determine whether general welfare is involved, safety, inalienable rights. This is important so for issues like campaign finance. This right? last part here, actually, for non-lawyers and not someone trained in the law or sort of outsiders, I mean, we look at the courts, the Supreme Court, of course, everybody's waiting. We made a decision on affirmative action from a federal court in Cambridge this week. But when you're saying to consider context and doctrine, it, most people would think, of course, context, historical context would matter because actually speech doesn't exist in a vacuum and certain things carry meanings that people learn through usage, daily usage and history. The terms that become problematic usually on campuses are terms that people pretty readily understand to at least go from, I want to offend, I want to be controversial to this is really inflicting harm or this is incitement. So people are not usually all that confused. They're like these terms, I mean, we know certain terms, slurs, epithets. Yeah. The context, but when you're saying balancing as a legal approach, can you say two sentences about that? What is that approach balancing? Course, yeah. Because it sounds people are balancing two different values and we got to take a side at the end. Absolutely, yeah. So we're not, it's not balancing. Well, let me explain based on what I was saying. So the court is using this categorical approach, and if the category doesn't fit, this historical category doesn't fit, it's not included. So the court periodically does use context. It uses it in passing, but it rarely explains it. It doesn't want to do what is now in the field called proportionality or weighing or balancing. Yeah. And I think that that's what courts do. We may know the meaning of that, but there is so much room for manipulation by courts, by university administrators, by whoever's in authority, that we need a sophisticated test for appellate-level courts to determine whether lower courts use things, look, consider what's the speech right of the person to say a slur, let's say. What's the countervailing concern? It could be a riot. It could be harassing. The person might not be able to get study the way she's able to because she can't get into a classroom. She's intimidated. The means end. Is it narrowly tailored? Is it going to allow, is it something that's big for a campus, just focusing on campus issues? Is it going to allow individuals to be more likely to study, to concentrate on their material, to feel robust in the classroom in their ability to intellectualize, to articulate their thoughts and so on. And then finally, is, there, is it the least restrictive? In other words, are we prohibiting someone from yelling, shouting, putting someone down, prohibiting other people from speaking? That's pretty narrow, because that does go to education. So we define, we understand what education is. The court should give deference to educators on that, but at the same time to balance it in some way that we don't say simply, is it a category? Okay. That the court has created, that the court is pretending it didn't create. So amongst the categories the court puts in is, for example, child pornography. That's a category that only came in the 1980s. It's not a category that goes back to 1791. The court claims that there are certain low-value categories of speech that existed at the time the Bill of Rights was ratified in 1791, and those are the only categories excluded from this strict scrutiny analysis of does the government have compelling interest, is the law narrowly tailored. And I'm saying... No, sometimes we don't need those things. We need an analysis, a contextual analysis that's much deeper in the context of you and I are talking about, or we can talk about outside of it as well, is the university. And that is what is going to tell us what's the countervailing concern. Well, that's going to be educational concern, right? So, so the court gives deference to the university to say, you look, you know, university, you have to regulate and make ground rules for things to work, namely that everybody can participate. There's, yes. there's also now, we do know, and you talk about this quite a lot, there's now... It's federally mandated both through 1964, Title VI, and then Title IX, 1972. So the university can't just also say, we 
we run our own university the way and some people just don't get to study certain subjects. The court said, no, no, yeah. you can't do that. So the context is that, but it's still, and you want to say it has to be narrow enough not to give some leeway to some person, an administrator, a student, a faculty, anybody else, or another court to say, all this type of speech is now out. You can't say it anymore. So that's right. very, the hard thing is then, doesn't it always just boil down to one case? And I think the cases we see is where people then, then what opens up, a lot of people say, well, you can't define hate speech. My hate speech is your enjoyment or my joke is your harassment, et cetera, et cetera. And then some people say, no, actually we're debating things that are quite obvious. So how narrow can you make it without just remaining so abstract that people can fit anything into it? So part of it is that, you know, we're left always with human judges, and there will always be debate. And the 5-4 majority, even on the court, we're going to disagree. You mean even these nine people in their black robes are, are just human? <laughs> Actually, I thought they just sent... entirely justices, They just sent straight... I thought they just sent straight from Madison and Jefferson's brain, spring from their minds, and give us wisdom. Two of the religion cases also, they're just... You know, there's always going to be contention. Is the government establishing religion, or do I have my... And this therefore they can suppress my right to free actually exercise because if I come into a public classroom and I want to make a prayer, is it a prayer therefore the public entity, the university can keep me out or is it my free right I can exercise my religion here? Always going to be left in a quandary, in an uncertainty, a debate, a discussion. This is what the Constitution tried to create for us. This is what the Declaration tried to create for us. So as I'm saying all we can do is create systematic tests that will allow for us to carefully scrutinize and allow courts to carefully scrutinize whether or not there has been a violation of the First Amendment or whether the type of expression, statements, are not within the regular boundaries of free speech in the public square and the university within the educational sphere. Look, there's not going to be complete certainty in constitutional and free speech law, but there are certain basic values of democracy. One is inclusion and statements that can be made. And we have situations not only in university settings, but for example, currently all over the world, there are democracies abusing democracies for the purpose of bringing in democratic leaders. In Hungary, for example, in Ecuador quite recently, in Turkey, in Weimar Republic it was certainly this way as well. In Algeria, people use these democratic means to get in a way to suppress speech, to suppress right. those freedom. So we're in the classroom to give a very honest example. Guy stands up, woman speaking about her civil rights. He begins talking her down. You can't speak. You're a woman. Women shouldn't speak. And it's an obvious thing. It's too. I'm just trying to give a reductio ad absurdum. In that situation, he's suppressing her speech. He's not allowing her to speak. So we can just say, look, this is an educational environment. You are using your speech. That is your interest. There's a countervailing concern that overrides it, and that is all people in the classroom should be able to get that speech, it's so loud she can't speak. So the means justify the ends of removing him from the classroom. We can take it outside of an individual classroom to do it with a presentation as is happening around the country where students are speaking, are yelling down speakers. And my point is that universities have a right to remove those people because they are inhibiting communication. So yes, so we have in this balancing formula that I laid out, there's the speech right. That's the guy who wants to, to shout someone down. There's a countervailing concern that everybody should be able to speak. You have your part for a little bit and then give someone else a chance. There's means ends. Yeah, you know, you'd be thrown out of the classroom, especially when we're teaching, but during even a presentation. And that is, can you speak anywhere else? Yeah, you can go somewhere 
And I tell him, you know, it's just people, this is what he believes. Usually one or three people, that's it. Why do you think this, I mean, you're saying that someone can use a democratic right to undo democracy. You can actually, in, under the mantle of your democratic right for free speech, actually introduce anti-democratic things, which, and then the example goes to the classroom where I can say, I want to say certain things under my right to speak in a classroom and invoke the First Amendment for the moment, although I may be in a private university, I'll just invoke it because it's really so important for American democracy. But then I'm going to tell you that you can participate, and you're saying democracy also is what you call inclusion or how we frame it as through equality. And that, that, to me, then, where we end up, which I think has been really fascinating and complicated in the last two or three years, that people jump very quickly on only one of those rights and say, I mean, I've interviewed now, I don't know, 40 constitutional scholars who all said to me, who all don't agree on one thing, but they all said, well, the first thing you have to know, there is no absolute right to say anything you want without consequence. I think that gets lost quite a bit because people say, my First Amendment right, and people think First Amendment yeah. is bigger than anything else. And then what I liked about your work, what I've read in the articles, then the students are in the position to either say, oh, I'm offended. And you're saying, well, that's, it's not feelings. It's not my personal sentiment. I don't that like the way you point. talk. I actually have a right to be in this classroom without constantly having to argue for my presence here. But there's another thing, a very important thing you just pointed out, we haven't talked about, and that is the whole issue of feelings. These microaggressions, currently safe spaces, trigger warnings. That, you know, it makes sense for us, I think, as educators to say things. If I'm talking about... Uh, when, you know, a period of cases or a period of history or some literature which you study that when women were, you know, you could Google, for example, Nikolai Google, there are clearly anti-Semitic elements, there are clearly chauvinistic elements in it. If you look at Dostoevsky, clearly chauvinistic elements and anti-Semitic elements, it makes sense for us to tell our students, okay, we're about to come to a rape scene or something in some Abed in one in Metamorphosis or something. To make people aware, but not that people can say, I can just walk out of the classroom because my feelings are going to be hurt. Because how can we educate? How do you teach crime and punishment? How do you teach the Iliad? If someone's so concerned about violence, they're unwilling to sit there. But it's an interesting question in some ways because I think it touches on the heart of education. And I've heard people on both sides, and some people have really insisted they need to show a two-hour self-pornography movie in its full length to give mm -hmm. the students the experience of having that. And I said, that's not teaching. So and I'm kind of into, when you looked at safe spaces and trigger warnings, I really, I haven't really seen a trigger warning, and I was in the administration of the largest private university in America for 11 years. I really have never seen a mandated trigger warning, ever. So well, there was one in Santa Barbara, so, you see Santa Barbara so, mandated it, and, and then the faculty was such so up in arms. They, and they, the they, intent behind it is to, I think this is why it's interesting to stay with this for a moment with this idea of feelings. The intent is really not that your feelings are disturbed, but I cannot really think, and this is, we know this from Aristotle already, there's certain things I can show you and I confront you with, and your capacity for cognitive function will be incapacitated momentarily. If I show you it's something... From, uh, Nick McKean, I think yes, where is from? Yes, and he says, basically, to be subjected to cruelty or horror doesn't allow you to think really clearly for a moment. So the trigger warning I said in the book I have coming out, that the first guy who warns us against trigger warnings is Aristotle. <laughs> so yeah, actually advised yeah. us that sometimes... But I think it's more that people say, and I've talked to a lot of students, they say, but it tends to always be the same issue. It always tends to be either 
misogyny, a rape scene, or violence against racial minorities. And that's the thing that people then stand up and defend. And I think what's lost in this discussion is your larger point, and it becomes a discussion about one incident. I want to show a graphic picture of some kind of horrendous genocidal massacre or of a rape scene. And I want to put the rape scene in class and turn the lights off and like, now the rape scene, but I didn't tell you what it is. And then someone gets up and says, I can't handle this. Right. I think it depends on what the context is then of the class. Mm -hmm. If somebody takes a class on you know, rape in um, Western civilization, literature is expected. I mean, the more difficult thing is I think where it's literature 101. And you're reading, you know, you don't know what you're reading. You walk into the classroom as a student, you're not sure, and the professor just assigns something to your human sexuality class. Maybe some sort of snuff pornography would make sense. I don't, I don't, you know, maybe that context. I'll tell you an example here. I had an interesting example. So I did a couple, very, very few, but left a mark on me, seminars with Catherine McKinnon when mm. I was in school. So I was able to just kind of sneak into the law school, and she gave these oh, seminars at Yale Law Visiting. She was at Michigan at that time. And the Maplethorpe controversy was happening about pornography, and Maplethorpe became kind of a free speech apostle because he was actually in front of the, the court, named in the Supreme Court, or the artist Karen Finley. So there was censorship against work that was considered pornographic, gay, transgressive, feminist, etc. And then Catherine McKinnon said something really interesting. She said, I teach pornography a lot. It's very offensive, and it's very problematic, and she doesn't look at it through the free speech, but to an equality lens. And then she said, but if I show pictures, men start talking and women shut up. And I mm. said, what? And she said, if I put those pictures on the wall, it gets men really talkative and women are silenced. And she said, that is not a productive moment. So I tend not to show the picture and talk about it nonetheless. And then everybody participates. So she said, it structures the discussion. And I, I always remembered this and I thought, that's the impact of words and images in the world. They put people in their places. They sort people in a way. If I use a racial slur in a classroom, the classroom would stop, and people yeah. would know their position. So I'm so you know. The, so there, this is a really nice segue for us to talk about how the private universities come into. Because you mentioned in passing, although we should make clear for the listeners, that the first amendment applies only to public entities, state universities, city colleges, junior colleges, and so on. So this, this is a nice segue. You spoke about Kathy McKinnon with the issue of how we deal with situations where, you know, it's not really entirely clear whether we're looking at something that should be more sensitive teaching this large classroom or not. Part of it is contextual, but obviously that doesn't give the full answer. The other one is that we should consider is the extent to which what's stated is so severe and pervasive that it is going to in some way harm or humiliate or even threaten someone with a sense that, whether it's a group or individuals, that they're not going to be able to participate in the classroom. Again, if the real clear examples are where there's, you know, Arthur Butts at Northwestern had this Holocaust denial site, if, but it was on the Northwestern site, which was later taken off. But if he had brought that in the classroom, that would be an obvious one. He was an engineering professor who brings this in, doesn't fit for sure. Not in that context at all. If I'm taking engineering, I don't want to hear it. I'm not there. Right. If I'm taking pornography 101, you know, as an art class, the development of, you know, you could do that. Certainly, you, you could stretch that out clearly to the ancient Indian art and to ancient Greek art, right? It's a legitimate study. I should be expected to see it. 
of the pornography. The problem is when I'm seeing the issue of trigger warnings, let's give you the example I have in my head, is I have heard, and I'm not going to mention names, obviously, criminal law professors who are not teaching rape. Why? Because they begin to teach rape and they begin to get complaints. There are complaints sent to the administration. I'm a rape victim. You know, sometimes it's complete insensitivity. Mm -hmm. I have heard of people asking students sitting in front of them, mm -hmm. hey, have you been a rape victim? Like, God, that's, you know, how insensitive, right? <laughs> and that, you know, how do we determine that? Right. So we're human beings, and the university has to judge that some way. It's going to make mistakes. You can appeal it up. We have a system. You know, it's inevitable there are going to be mistakes if it's a violation because someone says severe and pervasive, they suspend the person, they can appeal that sort of decision. We're never going to, again, have finality, but there has to be some ability of determining the severity of harm and while saying also, can I teach something that's necessary in the context of criminal law? If I don't teach rape, I have really let my students down. I got to, that is a heinous crime. They must know how to deal with it, right? So do you think there's a way for teachers? I'm, this is a great example, I think, because I think I understand why a teacher would be and should be really concerned to think, I don't feel really comfortable teaching something because I'm worried that someone's going to lodge a complaint against me. I think there's also power involved because not every law professor will be removed instantly because some student went to the dean and said, I didn't like this. But at the same time, Let's say there's now the atmosphere is chilled, as the court would say, and people don't feel comfortable teaching what they really ought to be teaching, you know, cases around rape, which are really important legal field. On the other side, you have students, and I think the students, I always try to listen, they're saying several things. They're saying, I don't want to be in this classroom, this is not handled. But I wonder whether they're saying this isn't handled right, or whether they're saying this should never be taught. And I think it switches very quickly when professors say, I'm just not going to teach it anymore. And shouldn't then we find a way to say, well, rape law has to be taught. What would be a way to teach it to not cause these situations? Like, is there both sides have to adjust in some way? I think so, but I think a lot of it is our own socialization. You know, we'd be really remiss if in constitutional law we didn't see at a time when women were unable to vote, when women were unable to own property, even though it might perhaps really might hurt somebody. It's not as severe, obviously, as sexual assault, but, you know, it could hurt someone in their sensitivity, or to even hear an opposing point of view, to hear an opposing view about gay marriage, for example, and the need to hear somebody says, I'm too sensitive, I don't want to hear, I'm too religious, I can't hear that side. The other one says, you know, I believe in human rights, I can't hear that side. Right. There has to be a way of generating debate without insult, ignominy, humiliation. Mm -hmm. And if we pretend that we don't understand these terms, and as long as it's a limitation based on content, therefore strict scrutiny applies automatically, which is what the court recently said in the case dealing with signage, signs put up in the public way, town of Gilbert, anything that's content-based regulation gets strict scrutiny. Well, presumably that must mean in the university, even though the court didn't say that, but it must if it's a public area, you could say it's not a public area entirely like sidewalks, so you can distinguish it. In other words, still we're talking about context. Or you might say that, no, we don't, for all content, in fact, use strict scrutiny. Copyright law, trademark law, incitement itself, right. true threats, all sorts of things. In fact, we are balancing social concerns, even things like fraud, which is clearly outside the personal sphere, securities markets violations, insider trading, which are clear. It's all content. But we do not use strict scrutiny. And then to say the court would be pretentious in its libertarianism. It's not true to its own 
doctrine. And it simply brings out these categories, not as pretentious, as I think, of course, totally authentic, but as a way of asserting itself and thereby limiting the ability of people who are represented in the public sphere to make some sort of limitations based on this balancing process. I think for non-lawyers, what you just said creates something difficult to understand. So they're saying the court could be pretentious and as libertarian impulse is saying. So there's so the court says we can limit certain things. So direct harassment, direct incitement, contract formation, defamation, false advertisement. I cannot go into a classroom as a teacher and start declaring that this or that brand is bad for your health, that if you drink this soft drink or whatever, or, you know, this will poison you, et cetera, et cetera, but do it in a consistent way and target somebody and publicize it, that company could probably sue me. The way famously Oprah Winfrey, the talk show host, was at some point penalized for saying that a certain brand of fast food or something is unhealthy. So let's say the students are saying, wait, you can't say if, have false advertisement. The court says that's not allowed, but you can use a slur, and there they say we cannot decide what hate speech is, strict scrutiny, it's not clear as a direct incitement, someone's going to be really hurt right away or only much later. So I think people feel what you say, and I want to unpack this, you said the libertarian impulse, they say it makes distinctions here and doesn't there, and then students or university administrators are standing there saying, well, you're not allowed to say that, but you can say anything you want because hate speech we can't understand, and then the students right. are saying, we're in a generation, we know. We yeah, are online. We've heard this it, enough. And I'll add one more thing because I had this conversation with several people. Fred Schauer, who you've you know referred to quite a bit. After Charlottesville, but, students are saying quite actively, "Are you really going to tell me you don't know how to define hate speech? We saw it." Yeah. So, so this yeah, will there. not will not replace. Sorry, it was a big model there in yeah. Charlottesville, and that was off the Confederate symbols. I actually spoke at the University of Virginia almost immediately after that event. Is called in by. A couple of student organizations, Black Law Student Association, the Jewish Law Student Association, Brandeis Center. It was really, really a neat, fascinating, phenomenal event. Where there are slurs, and when there are slurs in the classroom, there I think it certainly makes sense to say, you know, you're saying something right in the middle of class or you're, you have to leave. The more difficult matter comes in when there are stereotypes being made. And the stereotypes are based on some historical usage, Jews in control of money, power, blacks as being uh, carnal and infantile, Latinos or particularly Mexicans being drunks, Native Americans being drunks, not owning any land, stealing, being murderers, gypsies being thieves. I mean, these are Women being too emotional. Right? Well, yeah, shutting peak debate down that way. There, the educator has to have some sort of sensibility. Now, how does that come in with my balancing, because I think that that's really where you're heading, and I think that's a great question you're saying. So Breyer has justice balancing. Again, speech, kind of really concerns, means, ends, and then is it restrictive enough mm -hmm. not to harm speech type of regulation. Where I add something is the history and mm -hmm. the tradition. The history itself might be discriminatory, the chauvinistic matter that you just mentioned. Obviously, that's a historical form of exclusion. When we went to school, when education was not available at all, when women were expected to be quiet in classroom, even when they entered it, and so on. So it's not the tradition is the end all. The, the determinant for balances where we are not sure one person says balance it one way to sanction or some sort of other penalty, like, oh, I don't know, not even being able to graduate in the extreme in a university setting, 
or on the other hand, somebody saying that, no, you know, I really do need this restriction without any sort of regulation being necessary under these circumstances. So anyway, the debate about regulation is you bring in the purpose of education, this Robert Post has talked about very significantly, and we examine what is our purpose as educators. This is a history and tradition consideration. It's an evolving one. It does include Jack Balkin's concepts of on the wall and off the wall, some things that people said, well, women shouldn't be able to be in the classroom except in some very narrow fields. Now, you say, well, look, that was off the wall to say women should be engaged in education. Of course, now it's on the wall. Now we accept it. So it's an evolving tradition. It's an evolving history. So the point that I'm making is this analysis of balancing and textualization is not nihilistic. Okay. It's spoken of in the context of an ongoing debate that goes back, you know, back to Plato, I suppose, you know, and the purpose of the symposium and the agora and, you know, going out and speaking in the marketplace of ideas. And as as we know, Plato was a leader or jurist. None of us would want to have ruling our lives at all. I mean, first thing he gets rid of is the poets. And then he says there has to be a few poet philosopher kings who decide what's good for us because he was very afraid that people can tell apart the truth from opinion. So you're telling yeah. me something and you think that's your truth and I think it's truth we can argue course. openly in the marketplace, but Plato didn't trust any of this. He didn't have the Yeah, he used the Dorian mode in music and only yes. used militaristic music yes. and the other one, the Ionic, the Aeolic. Right. But the way to deal with that is, now we're getting really into the sort of academic stuff, is you deal with early Socrates, not the middle dialogues. Yes. You're talking about, you're talking about the Republic and laws, he's really, authoritarian, but you deal with Socrates in the skeptical mode of when Plato, and many scholars believe, was closest to Socrates himself, even though obviously he's still embellishing what Socrates has said, and that we as educators continue to be inquisitive and uncertain, and we're willing to experience and to learn from our students and to take in feedback and to say in the end of the day, the thing that I know is that, well, not entirely Platonic, but something I heard from someone else. The more I know, the more I know how little that I know, or, you know, as Socrates said, I know nothing. But you're right, that's Plato and Socrates to say that there are things we do not know, but to be aware of that is a step forward. Even if we don't cover that knowledge, we don't know everything. So that's... So let's open it up to students to say something. Let's leave our doors open so that we can hear from them, but still be realistic about who's the expert and who's the novice. That's really interesting. I think that's what Robert Post... You cannot have a discussion about last night's baseball in your law class or your math class. You'll actually be silenced. And he said, there's no ACLU that comes to your rescue, no Supreme Court precedent and no law students. And this, I think I've talked about this with Robert. And I said, where people, again, non-lawyers get confused and say, so I can't talk about baseball, but I'm going to be able to discuss and will be defended for discussing the genetic inferiority of African-Americans, really, which is settled. It's pseudoscience. It's been a... Jefferson is partly responsible. And so there people say, they want to go to where you are and say, okay, a kind of thoughtful analysis of context and history. And there to actually make some progress and not to shut down the conversation and say, well, this one thing we don't regulate and the other thing is absurd. You don't discuss the baseball scores. And then we flip back to balancing. So we don't just do history and tradition. We don't just say, I'm the expert. You shut up. That's an awful, awful way of dealing with it. We say, you have, again, I'm back to balancing. You have a speech interest. Tell me what's your speech interest. Why do you want to say this? Hmm. And how is it within the context of this class, this education? Center? Then we say, well, what's the university? 
What does it have in this context? And so we don't leave it. The purpose of this is to systematically allow for both sides of the discussion to come in. Let's hear all of your free speech rights. What's that about? Listen to the university. Let us explain to you where we're coming from. So and then how have we got anyway. The situations we've had, we've had outside speakers, often funded by outside organizations, who come to campus presumably to express an opinion. We've seen yeah. a lot of times it's a bit of a circus, and they come to promote themselves and to get notoriety and to end up on the news. I do not believe that some of these people genuinely want to impart their opinion They've also been on record to say, we want to antagonize people, we want to create a problematic situation, we want to disrupt the university. Yeah. And I'm quite interested in that, it goes back to what you said earlier, people can use democratic means to introduce anti-democratic things. People yeah. can use the university's willingness to say, I want to hear what you have to say. And you just said, give me your First Amendment or your explanation why you want to say this. People are not well, put to this test. They arrive on campus as a... I waved the First Amendment flag, and I'm going to now say the most anti-democratic or, yeah. or idiotic things. And the university doesn't really sponsor idiocy. I cannot come to your law school and give a lecture on the First Amendment because I don't have a law degree. They may invite me because I'll be the outside liberal professor who has a, you know... I wouldn't like to be But it would be interesting to say, like, I would not be, you know, I mean, I sometimes, you know, do things in the law school, but the law school has the right to say, no, you're not qualified. And now we've had all it's these... More, let, let, let's talk about actual specific examples. So Milo Yiannopoulos. Now, when Yiannopoulos shows up on campus, I'm told that, again, presentation at the University of Wisconsin, they'll tell me that he will actually call out a transsexual person or trans person, whatever the circumstances are under at the time, and will begin to put them down. That is a reason to put Yiannopoulos out, because he's not allowing everyone in the audience to participate. He's making that individual or that group of individuals feel uncomfortable. And that, the university is for an egalitarian, open environment. That is not, and he's not there for that. And then Ben Shapiro showing up and simply having a different point of view, a conservative point of view, that's, to me, it's the people who say, keep him out, that should be told, no, he's allowed to use things within the normal code of process of, you know, applying, getting a room, having a place to talk, even even if it offends you that he's taking a conservative point of view or a communist point of view of a communist point of view. But if someone calls for an armed insurrection, and certainly this is the way that Nazism worked, communism worked, the Red Guard worked in Maoist China, sure. Kami worked in Indonesia, the genocide of the Tutsis, the Bahutu movement worked through universities. I mean, that's something we haven't even talked about where it's not offense, where it's really mobilizing people, and there's that danger. So in one case, we have Yiannopoulos that's harassed, and then we have Shapiro, who is just controversial points of view that most of the liberal universities doesn't want to hear, and then on the, or if it's communist, that that, even that's a little bit too far out. On the other hand, we have really with Preston Fair was the same way, where his minions would come to your college university campuses and call Judaism a guttural religion and put down Jews. Well, how are Jews supposed to participate in that? You know, he believes the, that movement, the Nation of Islam, believes that intermixture between blacks and whites in marriages is something that offends them. It's right in the final column in their newspaper. So always right. speaks against it. If someone begins to speak about it, that's not inclusive, that the university can say it's just not something that everyone can come where a mixed black or white and a black parent can come and feel at home and say, oh, yeah, no, I can, I can give my point of view. 
No, it's exclusionary in that situation. Do you think in the context, and I know you're writing about this in your new book a bit, so do you think the context of both the internet and what we're living now with the Trump administration, which hasn't taken a very forceful position on white supremacy and you know Trump's very well-known statement after Charlottesville, which left people puzzled because it was ambiguous, I think actually what he did in a very clumsy way very, very clumsy, said what every liberal and conservative commentator said until the evening of the Charlottesville riot and the murder and said both sides deserve a hearing. I think Trump tried to channel that both sides need to be listened to. And after I went to Charlottesville and talked to a lot of people, they said, you're using the wrong lens. It's not a First Amendment issue. It's about violence and force. And it was Absolutely. I was really put in my place. And they said, you're actually talking about the wrong thing. This was an attack. This was deliberate. People got murdered. And it it's not that. It's also that is there an imminent threat of harm? This was right. true of the Skokie March case also. Well, there was really not so much. And people said, Skokie, yeah, well, and they marched somewhere else in Chicago, not a big deal. Everybody got away. If someone had been harmed, I think that case would look different to us today. It looked like Charlottesville. But I think it what you just said that in other countries there have been these incredibly repressive regimes fueled by harmful speech or hate speech. Skokie. And Lee Bollinger's very well-known book, The Tolerant Society, basically said anti-Semitism was not a dominant force in American society or politics. Therefore, we could tolerate this little march. And I've talked to Fred Schauer and people like this. And now students are saying, I'm not so sure that these things are not a little bit dominant, that white yeah. supremacy and racism and after the synagogue murders in Pittsburgh, after the murder of black church members by Dylan Roof in South Carolina, people think, this kind of violence is part of our society, and to actually tolerate it because we are so strong as a democracy? Did you think you that know, this, is, this is this naivete of the free speech libertarians that the U.S., in this I would include Jeff Stone, certainly, and Nadine Strauss, and both of whom are very, very close friends of mine, but with whom I've debated, and that is that the U.S. society, and I began with this, and I'm so glad you brought it back, it's Jeff's statement that, look, this is democracy, we flourished as a democracy with this much speech, it does not make sense here to have sanctions in the same way, for example, in Germany, that might make sense. To which my response is that pro-slavery thought was instrumental to John Calhoun, Governor Weiss in Virginia, their pro-slavery thought, and even Thomas Jefferson, you mentioned before, in his Kentucky declarations, with secessionism being mentioned there, that it was dominant in justifying slavery and oppression in the United States. So too were the anti-Native American views that were explicated. First, in the 17th century, the colonists got on well with Native Americans because they needed them. Soon there was this statement made about them that they didn't own land, they didn't, because they were matrilineal in some cases, they were riparian, they had seasonal property ownership, they didn't have simple feasts, simple, and that this showed that we can take their land. That became ingrained in the culture and part of colonial policy. It is naive to say in the United States that the influences of speech have not altered the behavior of individuals. Time and time again, anti-Semitism, year after year. I've seen no change. You're looking at the FBI report, the yearly statement by the FBI. Hate crimes are the number two worst offenses. They are being catalyzed. It's uh, Blacks are number one. Jews are always second on the list, and gays and lesbians being third. And so these are people who are being catalyzed into hate crimes, intentional crimes against a particular group that is being targeted, not in a vacuum, but within certain 
cultural milieus. Now, if it's a simple statement, an abstract statement, that's entirely protected. And that's why I began with Evgeny Kladnicidis Nova. She spoke in the general abstract with her cousin about the possibility of killing Stalin. That's another thing that she did and why she wound up in the gulags for 10 years. At that time, there was a Soviet official who was killed in St. Petersburg. It was a very famous assassination. And she said to her cousin, she said, cousin, this is a completely true story in Soviet Union. It happens in the 1930s. She says, for how much would you kill Stalin? And he says, for X amount of rubles. And he asks Evgeny Kalavna, for how many would you kill Stalin? And she says, for something like 50,000 rubles. And she's also writing these children's stories, as I mentioned to you, that are anti-communist regime. And she's taken in for that. No, that is hyperbole. That's entirely protected. Speaking about violence in the abstract is entirely protected. Associating with haters is entirely protected. But it's where there's the intent element, the down, back to it again. Or there's harassment in a contextual setting like the university. And the example using from Stalinist Russia is, of course, a legal regime we wouldn't accept today as properly built on the foundations of the law. In some ways, we would say that's a corrupt regime. And that's interesting when you said Jeff Stone and Nadine Strauss and say, our democracy is strong enough. It can withstand these assaults on itself from within itself. And I've talked to Fred Schauer, to Nadine, and they said, well, in Germany, you have to regulate these things because you have a history of atrocity of the Holocaust. And I said, these things are utterly incommensurate. They can't be compared. They're totally different. Nonetheless, my students all said, but America had slavery for 400 years and it had the genocide mm -hmm. of the Native Americans. We had a genocide and we've had chattel slavery for 40 years and we had a war to end it. So why can people say America has no such threat? And it was fueled by the speakers like Calhoun. There was an anti-slavery sentiment before 1820 and before around 1823. Most abolitionist organizations, associations were in the South. They were driven out of the South, yes, by violence, yeah. as people like Claremont have pointed out. But it was because the statements that came out were not an apology about slavery that existed in this country until the Compromise of 1820. But now a defense of slavery. The words were critical. They led to the Civil War. Well, and, we had, and we had that the gag rule in Congress for some eight years. People were not allowed to discuss abolition because it was an incendiary issue. So the Congress itself, which was supposed to be the great marketplace of all political ideas, repressed speech for eight years in a country. That, yes. And some people have made that point to me. And they've said, look, this is what happens with repression of speech. You get this gag rule and you can't talk about abolition. To which my point is that, for one thing, there was information available to the South. There were congressional globes being published, and, and John Quincy Adams was speaking against slavery in his petition. May I bring this petition against that, <laughs> uh, calling for abolition? I'm not going to speak about abolition, but may I read it? And that was available in the South. They had counter-speech available. They were not entirely gag. And the gag was about the advancement of civil rights. There we come back to the Declaration of Independence and back to the preamble. What's the purpose of government? To advance the general welfare, to protect inalienable rights on an equal basis, to help people advance their ability towards happiness. And we can determine that we're somewhat where the suppression is suppressing one's ability to pray in some way as, as one wants to, to speak out against injustices. That these are contrary to the values of speech, not as speech that we can trace into our founding documents, not just to philosophy, not just to Plato and Aristotle, but to 
our own founding documents that are created in this very unusual way that Latin American Declaration of Independence and others, except in Haiti, and this is the only example where I know of in the early 19th century where there was some statement about rights, this preamble that exists in the Declaration of Independence. And if we pretend these are empty words, they have no effect, it is untrue to the way that human beings have experienced these since the time of the framing. And where we fall short, there we have to be honest with ourselves and say the way that we treated this group and that group or continue to treat one group or another is untrue to the egalitarian values. But we have to speak about that, speak about that freely. Mm -hmm. Where it comes to harassment, threats, intimidation, incitement, those are things that just people will feel excluded from the conversation and not in the public square where somebody is speaking in a traditional way to a few speakers, but where someone's speaking in university settings, there might be at times it has to be examined case by case in a particular circumstance whether in fact there should be some sort of limitation on speech in order to allow everyone to be able to communicate as long as that person has had a right to make his or her and statement. And you, as you said, the kind of category you added to the prior in this dissent, or in this, you say there is a way to actually narrowly tailor a kind of rules of conduct, which, of course, all universities have both unwritten ground rules and formal rules for behavior. And you're saying there is a way to find something. So actually, what I appreciated a lot that you said, there is a way to actually think about it in advance of a crisis and say, we can think about what speech really is conducive to this learning environment, meets all these criteria, but still protects people's right to expression. And now you know, what's interesting is even Jeff Stone's is very famous Code, speech code they put out at the University of Chicago, yeah. in fact, admits that there are limits on fighting words and on incitement. So it's framed as this very speech-oriented code, and it is. But even it recognizes that there are certain things that go beyond the pale, such as incitement threats, but still misses harassment. And that's something else. There are also, I've studied this in various writings, different college codes that have scienter elements in them, some that do just have negligence, and we have to question it now. The scienter, the mental element, the intent element that we spoke about earlier, that makes sense in the criminal code. Does it make sense in university? Maybe not, because that's civil. In fact, the penalty isn't even monetary, most likely. It's going to be just some sort of penalty that's university penalty. So maybe, maybe under that circumstance, Delgado's type of tort does make sense. You know, I mean, it's all part of this discussion and framing, but what doesn't fit in is let's suppress a discussion about philosophical ideas of it, like in some universities where students have called for the suppression of Virginia Woolf, the great Gatsby, of right. Scott Fitzgerald, and Ovid, and others. And, you know, these sorts of things strike me as outside of education. Now we're back to Ovid Post, and that is let specialists define what it is right. that's there and, and hope for sensitivity and discussion amongst the universities of how to present these sorts of ideas to our students. I'm going to try to get in touch with Jeff Stone and see whether he would want to have a conversation. I spoke with a student, University of Chicago graduate, Cameron Okeke, who wrote a piece in response to this letter and said, I am a University of Chicago graduate, and safe spaces allowed me to graduate. It's a very powerful piece, and he said, as a black student from a low-income bracket, he said, Chicago, it was essential for me to have peers who actually mentored me because I wasn't totally ready to be in this university, but I thrived, and he said it was the best experience of his life and the most challenging experience. May I say something about that? So safe spaces are voluntary. 
there we can only applaud it. I was a member of Black Law Students Association, though I'm Jewish and not African American at all. And I was a member of Women in Law. I love those. I thought those were meaningful issues. And you were allowed to attend, you say. It was inclusive in that way. You I'm inclusive. <laughs> the problem is that some students around the country, and I can actually name the universities, want exclusive things right. by sexual orientation, exclusive by race, even floors that would be exclusive, right? That to me is outside the pale of what. Let's, you know, you're welcome in. You can't talk me. If it's a Jewish organization, you can't come in there as a white supremacist to talk us all down so right. that we're going to be degraded, humiliated, insulted. Or if it's a women's rights organization, come in and insult our right. mentalities. You're welcome. T right. Tell us your view, but tell it in a way that we can converse with you rather than. Right. And we're going to educate you, of course, about the equality, human equality. Safety and safe spaces are wonderful because they allow people to function, but where they are exclusionary, yeah. where they say, you are not welcome if you are not one of us, right. that to me is problematic and the university should, I mean, of course, in a private setting, it wouldn't happen, but not I not, think what I really appreciate, I think you're taking the time to discuss this, why this is problematic, because from the Declaration of Independence, the preamble to equality rights, to the Civil Rights Act, to Title IX, because I think students have felt we want to have a space where we feel actually we're supported and mentored by our peers. And you've had this for centuries because every club at every Ivy League school, I interviewed Stefan Bradley, who wrote a history of black students in the Ivy League. They were not allowed to live in the dorms. They weren't allowed to join the glee club. They couldn't be on the sports teams. So he said for 100 years, black students had been at Ivy's and they were treated that they didn't belong. So when they say we would like to have a group where we can hang out, suddenly equality is a paramount thing and people are being shut down. And he said, the entire system was set up to exclude us, and we want to actually be able to function. So the deeper history... The critical thing is not to be exclusionary. So I'll give you an example of what I mean by this in terms of scholarship. Where Derek Bell, as you know probably in a number of his writings, speaks about the advantage of single-race education. That, to me, is taking us back to segregation. <laughs> it's perfectly fine to say I want to go to Howard. Right. or I want to go to a historically black school, or I want to go to Notre Dame because of the large Roman Catholic presence and the discrimination in the United States that existed in the Know Nothing Party and so on against right. Roman Catholics. I want to be around Roman Catholics. That is completely legitimate, as long as you're welcoming of right. others. Now, I want to experience and imbibe what it means, your deep experiences as a person of African-American origin, of, right. as a woman, as a gay and lesbian, as a Latino, as a Native American. Please, let me into your club. One of the most meaningful experiences I had in my entire life was around 18 years old. I hitchhiked into Anadarko, Oklahoma, and was at a powwow there with two Native American tribes that now exist in the United States, one in Anadarko, Oklahoma, and one up north in, in Oklahoma. I can't quite remember the city. They come together, they used to war together, and they allowed me to enjoy this yearly ritual. And at some point they said to me, we're moving on to a peyote ritual, would you mind leaving? And I left, because that was theirs. Mm -hmm. But but it wasn't closed off, it was, right. and it could, I had been interested in that subject of Native American rights since I was a teenager, and this allowed me into that world. So let's be inclusive, but if someone comes in and wants to be exclusive, right. if someone right. comes in right. and insults and puts us down in Title VI, right. in fact, does come in, right. I think. But I think we just open up. I'd love to have you back on at some point. I mean, Derek Bell, such a giant in this kind of thinking and thought very hard. And as we know, very famously left Harvard Law School and actually then taught at NYU in protest over the fact that they couldn't find one African-American woman candidate to fit a job for years and years and years and claimed there was nobody good enough. And he said, well, then I leave. 
So yeah, Derek Bell, Bell, very principled person, but it's interesting that he would propose something. So he was, I heard him even the, the first time I heard him speak was in the eighties, yeah. and he said, "I used to have a dream of one black child near one white child sitting together, referring to Martin Luther King." But I no longer dream that, about that. He said, "I now believe it should be a school of black." And I came up to him afterwards. I waited wait until everyone had left the line. There was a long line. I waited. I was the last one, and I said. You know, to me, no, I still have that dream. It's actually I, all together, you know. Is, I have somebody else, Ian Haney Lopez from UC Berkeley School of Law. He wrote the introduction to one of his books that he was mentored by Derek Bell, was his idol, and then was really disillusioned, and then came around to understand what Derek Bell was doing. I'll send it to you. It's five pages. It's very moving. Well, now, Derek made an extremely important point. It's not, I mean, Derek was a brilliant person, and he was a lovely man. Made this very great point that I never understood until I thought about it in a very personalized way, and that is that racism will always be with us, and that was his purpose of segregating. I don't think we need the segregation; we need integration. But at first, I thought, no, no, that's not right. You know, we'll get over it. Then I thought, but well, what about anti-Semitism? I'm not sure humanity will ever get past that, or sexism, whatever you have. And so we we should be conscious of that, and we need to be conscious there the empathy. It comes in, and perhaps trigger warnings come in, of understanding that certain things, calling a white man a boy is not likely to insult, but calling a black man a boy is very likely to insult. You should understand that. And in that sensitivity, and there we have to sensitize ourselves. There the nuances really do come in, where I really doubt that a college administration could make quite those you know, nuances where there's no intent you know, it's it's just there, it's you say, I say, there I'm really leery, and I do think that this, is, I understand, shows a lot of subjectivity, that we should side on the side of the speaker to be able to say something where someone says it's offensive to you, and you say, well, but he said his piece, and he was quiet, and then you let you say your piece, he said a little bit more, but you, you know, you both were conversing, you got to understand, there's differences of opinion here, that to me seems like we should not leave it in the hands of administrators to make that degree, that minutia, where you know, it's difficult to trace. But you do point out in your fourth point that you have to take context and tradition and history into consideration, and then there's power involved. So if someone comes to a campus and commands Ben Shapiro, commands Zellerback Hall at UC Berkeley, it spoke to a thousand people. It's a privilege accorded to very few individuals. And then mm. to use that to target students who are in a weaker position. Power is a really interesting part of this conversation. What you're saying, this has to be considered. There's history to these things. It is not just they're all in a vacuum and every speaker has the right to say whatever they want, which yeah. we would like to have that for a moment, but that's an abstraction that then runs and crashes into reality, into lived experience of people. In context, let me say it even a little bit clearer, because this will even come out even clearer where history and tradition, it really comes in. The statements about Jews using Christian children's blood in Passover matzah, statements about black men raping white women, statements about disloyalty by Japanese, and other things we know as a historical model has not been used just once for the purposes of attack, but have been used time and time again. We have to look at context again. Is it a rap song, or is it, you know, somebody created, a student created a rap song and plays it, or is it somebody saying these tropes in a setting where, given the context of this setting, given it's a white supremacist meeting, let's say, and the person is saying, one of these days we really should kill somebody who's black, and is different than where you have Brandenburg, is a case where the court found a constitutional incitement law in Ohio, 
but it was a private meeting with a crossburn. No one was invited except the cameraman of a news crew and the newspaper reporter. No one, it could not have incited something there. But in Virginia v. Black, where there's a true threat and people outside see this, in that context, right. you have a burning cross and the court says, no, that's a true threat. What's the difference? The difference is context. Mm -hmm. And it's almost never, almost never spoken about by scholars. Brandenburg is a private meeting. And it matters in Great Britain because if you say racist things in private meetings in Great Britain, it's protected by law. It's actually stated in their hate speech law. Right. But in a public setting, and particularly one, as you said, Jester Mill and by a grain merchant, as his example, but in our setting, it might be Charlottesville under yeah. statute, and you're making certain statements that might really incite people to commit violence. And you have to remember that it's really the liberal groups that started that violence. And there it's the issue about fighting words. It's, can it instigate something right. immediately, even from the other side, that I think has to be considered? These are really complicated matters. Right. We must favor speech. I'm all for that. But we also have to be honest about the need in certain situations to create narrowly tailored restrictions that are not so difficult as that we have to prove strict scrutiny, which is almost impossible for the university to overcome and to prove that, in fact, there is a need to allow educators to say there are certain content restrictions here. Right. I'm going to put a link to your campus speech and harassment article, which is quite long. I think it's over 50 pages, so it's quite detailed. Yeah. But then <laughs> tell me again the book that's going to come out later this year or early next year. Contextual free speech right. is it yeah. called. And then the one you mentioned earlier, which is my first book, Destructive Messages, How Hate Speech Paves the Way for Harmful Social Movements. I've also spoken about speech in the context of elementary and kindergarten, elementary yeah. school and high schools as well. That's a different setting that you and I have talked right. about all together called categorizing student speech. But that is not the university. We'd have to have a modified discussion. Still, where the court has slightly different approach, right, how school can regulate yeah, speech. Yeah. So I want to thank, thank you for this far-ranging conversation. It's great, and especially that you've taken the time to explain that something like codes of conduct could potentially work. And I think the idea behind this, they could improve things at the university. They're not too- They have to exist in the university and almost nobody is studying them. I have them in my writing where you can go and look even online and find these codes and go through them and examine them and critique one part or another part. The University of Chicago is only one place. You can make University of Wisconsin and Wake Forest and also some universities do not have codes. For example, Ohio State does not have one. But as a general rule, there are codes that are well thought out. The University of California is a very controversial one. You probably yeah. are well aware of that. Eugene Bollock has been very critical of that, and I've defended that yeah. campus. So let's go code by code rather than this abstract, all codes are prohibited. Right. Let's look at the nuances, the context, the situation, and then evaluate them based on a systematic balancing approach that's realistic about the history and tradition of education in the United States. Thank you so much, Alex. So I really uh, greatly appreciate it, and I'll let you know, and then I'll probably think of another conversation when your book comes uh, out. It's your pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much for participating. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, really good.